arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. The handyman Webster Howard is seen in the opening of episode one of The Handyman's Secret. Coco and Jones clash with Bucky Driscoll. Again, also seen here is Janet Boudreau, a woman whom Coco Stefani atypically is immediately enamored Distracting Coco is the dense and scattered former Hamilton coach Lark Larson. And in his private box, rooting for his horse, Pride, is the town patriarch, Hamilton Fletcher. Let's head out to the racetrack on a sunny spring day with loads of money riding on the horses and begin The Handyman's Secret by Robert P. Fitton. The Handyman's Secret by R.P. Fitton. Prologue. Frothingham Racetrack, Prince William, New Hampshire. Disaster like murder has a definite chain of prearranged events, leading to an unlikely but final conclusion. Matthias Jones walked across the racehorse stalls with Coco Stefani a few hours before the Memorial Day race, the Ocean Stakes. Jones, a few weeks away from his summer vacation at his Aunt May's home in Indiana, longed to shed the tension accumulated from another year of coaching three sports at Hamilton College. Next week, he and Enterprise publisher Tom McGill would rent a boat and spend a day fishing around Hamilton Bay. How long have you owned this horse, Coco? asked Jones. Uh, we've had a Vinny for three years, Jonesy. He said, looking around. <laughs> no rain on this parade. Sun's out. Yeah, for now. Why Vinny? <laughs> Why not? said Coco, looking toward the end of the stalls. I just thought I saw that rodent Driscoll near my horse. Webster Howard is supposed to be up there grooming Vinny. Bucky is big buds with Webster Howard since Muriel joined the Peace Corps. I've had Webster do repairs at my house. He's a big Hamilton baseball fan. Yeah, right. What Howard does on his own time is his business. But like I told him, Driscoll is a walking disaster area. I kicked him out of the barn last week. We're in the competition for the ten grand prize in this race. The majority owner, Vinny, won't take kindly to losing. Who's that? Coco stared at Jones and then winced. Let's just call him the Phantom. Phantom? asked Jones. Coco smiled and leaned toward Jones. Just drop it, Jonesy. Hamilton Fletcher has a horse in this race, too. Coco stopped and slapped Jones' shoulder. His dark eyes had a cunning, almost diabolical look that Jones knew very well. The old man bought his damned horse in Kentucky. That horse was bred for Hamilton Fletcher himself. Cost him seven mil. He's planning big things for that horse. 
Vinny's from upstate New York. Cost me 50 grand, but he's worth a lot more. We want him to produce consistently. That's why Driscoll doesn't need to be near that horse. No, I understand. Well, Hamilton wants the Fletcher name out there. Who the hell cares? Bucky Driscoll, holding a water bucket, rounded the corner of the barn. A beautiful auburn-colored thoroughbred stuck his snout out the end of the stall. Bucky said something to the horse. What the hell is he doing? asked Coco, increasing his pace. Hey, what are you, deaf? said Bucky loud enough for Coco's eyes to widen. Hey, don't yell at my horse, moron! Huh? asked Bucky, turning. Then he looked back at Vinny. A simple command, you dumb horse. Count to five. How difficult can that be? Yeah, can you do it, Driscoll? Huh? Get the hell away from my horse! Bucky stared into the horse's eyes. One, two, three, four, five. What are you, stupid? Coco grabbed Bucky's red Hamilton College windbreaker and hoisted him up the barn board. You listen to me, Roden. That horse cost me 50 grand. Bucky's double chin bunched into his sweatshirt. Well, you got jip, Coco. That dumb horse can't even count to five. <laughs> Neither can you, P-Brain. Yeah, I can. One, two, three, four, five. So there. Ah, congratulations, said Coco, letting go of Bucky. Bucky fell onto the ground and rolled again. You don't get out of here, and I'm going to tie you to the saddle and drag your fat ass around this track. Bucky stood and brushed the straw off the windbreaker. I knew Arnie was wrong. Yeah, well, he usually is, said Jones, trying not to laugh. Arnie told me that certain horses understand what you're saying, and some of them can actually talk. Coco sneered at Bucky as he looked around the stall. Where's Webster, doofus? Oh, he was pretty sick, said Bucky, turning to Jones. Coco furrowed his brow. What do you mean he was sick? Stomach, said Bucky, getting closer to Jones. Arnie talked with old Pete up in the Fletcher stalls last Christmas. Who's your jockey, Coco? We used in shoddy Pataki. We've used him before. He's clean. Arnie had a few at the Dewey's party, said Bucky, as Jones looked at him briefly. Do you know that horse told him that Locke Larson was going to drive his car into the Beaver Dam swamp? Hey, Driscoll. Take your talking horse stories back to the farm. Yeah, well, you think I'm crazy, but Arnie heard that horse talk. You're a dimwit, and so is Dewar's. I have a high IQ. Yeah, well, when you pass the horse's IQ, you let me know. Here you go, Mr. Smarty Pants. A horse has to have an IQ in order to talk. <laughs> Beat it, Driscoll, said Coco, pulling back his leather jacket and exposing his handgun in the shoulder strap. Hey, you don't have to get rough, said Bucky, backing up and knocking over a bucket of water, scaring the horse. The horse neighed as Coco patted his snout. It's okay, Vinny, okay. Look, Vinny, you have my permission to kick that silly rodent if he comes by here again. I didn't know you could talk to a horse, Coco, said Jones. You watch yourself, Jonesy. I don't want to lose this race because Driscoll pulled one of his stunts. Fifty yards away, Bucky walked up to Webster Howard, a short middle-aged man with receding, wavy, dark hair. He pointed back to Jones. Webster nodded and shuffled along the stalls. He wore his gray work pants and shirt. Hey, Webster, I appreciate the work you do for me and all the work you do at the Fletcher Stables. I'll tell you one thing, do not, and I repeat, do not let that grunt Driscoll within five miles of Vinny. Oh, I'm, so I'm sorry. Something I was drinking, I spit most of it out and poured it in the trash over there. Listen, I'm sorry you're sick, he turned to Jones. Old man Fletcher isn't above cheating his way to the winner's circle. 
I don't want to read in the paper that Pride won the Ocean Stakes. And where the hell is Shorty? Shorty had to make a call. Are you kidding me? Get him back here. How do I know the old man isn't slipping him money right now? Well, Punky Nuncio is riding Pride. Punky? Now that creep would sell out his own mother for a piece of the pie. Coco looked around the stalls. You go find Shorty. Jonesy and I will stay here. Okay, I'm sorry about Bucky, he said as he started back. Yeah, that's what his mother said when the rodent was hatched. Coco turned to Vinny and rubbed his snout. I got a ten grand prize waiting in the winner's circle, Vinny. If I win this, you can have whatever you want. Yeah, what did he say? asked Jones, laughing. Don't be a wise-ass, Jonesy. A young woman in her twenties, with pinned-up dark hair, produced a huge smile when she caught sight of Vinny. Her skin was smooth and white, and she had a beauty mark on her cheek. She wore a lightweight jersey and riding pants. Her eyes sparkled as she rubbed Vinny's snout. What a beautiful animal, she said in a slow, almost snooty tone. Yeah, thank you. His name is uh, Vincenza, said Coco. He's racing today. Oh, I suppose his name has some sort of significance. Yeah, it's a town in northern Italy, about 40 miles from Venice. My grandfather was from Vincenza, said Coco. Jones raised his brow. Coco shook her hand. She had black painted nails. I'm Coco Stefani, by the way, and this is Coach Jones from Hamilton College. I'm uh, Janet Boudreau, J.B. I thought I recognized you, Coach, she said, shaking Jones's hand. I board my horse up at the Fletcher Stables. I did some charity work behind the scenes for the Fletcher Youth Programs last year. There was an auction. Good for you, said Jones. You in this race, J.B.? She produced a button smile for Coco. Oh, no, I compete in dressage and jumping events. I thought so, replied Coco. Coco removed a black card with pink lettering that said Club Max. I own Club Max. Feel free to drop in. Bruno will set you up with whatever you're drinking. Well, thank you, Coco. I just may do that, she said, turning to Jones. Oh, Mr. Stefani, said Lark Larson as he approached arm-in-arm with his girlfriend, Flo. Coco's smile fell away and he squinted. Can't you see I'm busy, Larson? We need your advice on how to place our bets for the race. Get lost. I'm usually at the club, he said to JB. I look forward to seeing you. I have money left over from that winning Massachusetts lottery ticket, said Lark. Lark sometimes gets lucky, said Flo. Coco watched JB leave, then he spun back toward Lark. Hey, Lawson, didn't anybody ever tell you to butt out of personal conversations? What horse would you recommend, asked Lark, taking out a pen and a small notebook. What do I look like, a bookie? You have underworld connections. Jonesy, get him out of here. Lark, just use your best judgment. Well, if I take the number of races and divide by winning and multiply by the combined purses of the purebreds... What? asked Jones as Coco looked out with a nauseous expression. That is a jolly good idea, Matthias. As he turned with Flo, Coco stepped out in front of them. Hey, wait, Lassen. Bet on jingle bells. You mean this Christmas? asked Lark. No, the horse, you idiot. Is that an official tip? Yeah, it's an official tip. I am in your debt, sir. Lark took Flo's arm and began humming a marching type of song. Jonesy, you don't think Driscoll did anything to Vinny's water, do you? Bucky may be a lot of things, but he's above board. Yeah, well, he's also dumb as dirt. Jones looked at Coco. What are the odds on jingle bells? 
<laughs> 30 to 1. Coco, he'll lose, yeah? And Lawson will never ask me for a tip again. Hamilton Fletcher wore a white suit and linen brown tie. He sat in a special box above the grandstand below. Ahead, the Devonshire Hills' deep green outlines contrasted against the blue sky. Hamilton Bay extended along the shore to the right. Ham Fletcher had an open shirt and his wife Jen wore a sheer apricot flowy dress. Jones felt a little out of place as a guest of Hamilton Fletcher. Ham leaned over to Jones. Dad says you placed a bet on the pride of the hill. Did I have any choice? asked Jones, laughing and looking at Hamilton. Tell me about it, said Ham. Can I get you a drink, Matthias? asked Hamilton with the waiter hovering in the aisle. Beer is fine. Two scotches, a beer, and water, said Hamilton. Then he turned to Jones. The jockey I have is Harry Nuncio. He's experienced and will do what it takes to win. Ah, the Fletcher way, said Jones. Exactly, said Hamilton, laughing and slapping his leg. Now you're learning. A skinny man in a maroon sport coat, white shirt, and striped tie shook hands with Hamilton Fletcher. Everyone knows Reverend Bricker. Reverend, said Jones. He had only met the pastor of First Parish Church once during a fall festival last year. Well, keep that baseball team winning, coach. Will do, Reverend. Jones spotted Coco down front near the wall. Excuse me one second. No problem, said Ham as he produced an unusual half wave to Coco. Get a good view of the race. Jones moved down the concrete steps. Hey, hey. Ham Fletcher waved at you. You know him? Neither him or the old man will ever say they know me, but they know me. More than that, they owe me. What do you mean by that? Enough said, Jonesy. He picked up a small pair of binoculars. You think J.B. will show up at the club, Jonesy? She seemed like a nice girl. Yeah, right. Who's the beanpole next to the old man? The Reverend. He's pastor of Hamilton's church, First Parish. Coco smiled. <laughs> Reverend at the racetrack. Bingo receipts must be down. Father Gallagher's been over here. Yeah, and he never wins, said Coco as the announcer broadcast the horses being brought to the front gate. Coco pointed to a state trooper in his beige and green uniform near the rail. Ah, there's that doofus O'Connell. Bigger doofus than Pinky Harris? He works for Pinky. Great. Jones looked at Lark at the other end. I hope Lark didn't lose too much money on that horse. Hey, it's up to Lawson to figure his own bets. Coco hit Jones' side. I say she shows up at the club. Yeah, well, I say Jingle Bells comes in first. I'll forget that old nag. Fifty bucks says J.B. comes into the club. I'll take that bet, said Jones as he shook Coco's hand. The horse is readied at the gate. Gonna be broke before you leave here, Jonesy. Lark wandered out with Flo into the lower wall before the track. He held his yellow ticket out in the sunny spring air as if he were hailing a cab. Don't look now, Jonesy, but Lawson placed his bet on something. Well, I hope it wasn't too much money. Hey, if Lawson spent ten bucks, I'd be shocked. Jones turned back to Hamilton Fletcher's box. Webster Howard spoke with Reverend Bricker and then put his arm around a hefty woman in a blue flowery dress, who Jones assumed was Webster's wife. On the ramp stood Pinky Harris in his gray and blue state trooper uniform. What's Pinky Harris doing here? asked Jones. Maybe his goofy nephew Wendell lost one of Strickland's cruisers. Jones grinned. Pinky Harris, I hate that guy. 
Yeah, he still thinks he's got a license to intimidate the world. Coco hit his arm. Pay attention, Jonesy. They're going to open the gate. You really think Hamilton Fletcher's horse will lose? <laughs> I guarantee it. The horses broke even from the gate with jingle bells pulling slightly ahead. Below, Bucky Driscoll joined Lark and Flo at the fence. Bucky showed Lark a ticket and then began screaming for jingle bells so loud that Jones could hear him above. Come on, jingle bells! Come on, jingle bells! Come on, buddy! Looks like Bucky's in on the action, bells. said Jones. Yeah, well, I hope the rodent gets what he deserves. Hamilton Fletcher on his feet and looking through field glasses shouted Pride's name as the horses galloped down the stretch toward the turn. Webster Howard and his wife were not in the box. The Reverend appeared to be reading something and Pinky Harris was gone. Come on, Vinny, cried Coco. You're waddling down there like a drunken duck. He turned toward Jones. I can't believe how bad this horse is doing. It has to be Driscoll. Come on, Jingle Well, you don't Bells. know that. That horse is a winner and Driscoll messed up his head. The announcer came over the PA. Come on, Jingle Bells! This Jingle Bells in the lead, followed by Strawberry Patch. Pride of the Hill with Vincenza coming up the rear. Come on, Jingle Bells! Come on, Shorty, move that horse! It's Pride of the Hill and Vincenza neck to neck as Strawberry Patch is fading. Hamilton Fletcher's voice sounded more like a bear growling. Well, that son of a bitch better win this race. Coco looked at Jones. <laughs> the old man's in for a surprise. Larson's horse is four lengths ahead. Come on, Jingle Bells. Lo, Lark still held the ticket up as if he were a mannequin, but Bucky spun around in circles, calling the horse's name. Jingle Bells, Jingle Bells. Jingle Bells, Jingle Bells. Looks like Bucky will win some money, too. Jingle Bells, Jingle yeah, Bells. Yeah, he'll pay for his ticket to the North Pole with the other elves. Oh, Vinny needs work, said Coco, ripping up the ticket. The pieces scattered into the wind. Hamilton Fletcher, still on his feet, screamed at his horse as if the horse would somehow respond to his edict. Oddly, the Reverend was still reading a small book which made Jones curious. Ham Fletcher talked with his wife and shook his head. Jones looked back as the horses started down the final stretch. Then he focused on Bucky, still running in circles with his ticket held high around the oblivious Lark and Flo. Hey, Jonesy, you saw the race. Did Shorty push that horse? I don't think he did. And neither do I. He looked up at the Fletcher box. I wonder if the old man slipped a few bucks to him. Hamilton likes to win. Right, but that bag of bones jingle bells win in the ocean? Give me a break. Somebody made Mooler on this race. Yeah, Lark, said Jones, pointing. Bucky jumped up and down like a monkey as he led Lark with Flo on his elbow across the lower area. Lark stared at his ticket as he shuffled. Well, if he put ten bucks down, he's made almost four hundred bucks. He can buy himself a new hearing aid, said Coco. When Jones turned, he saw Hamilton Fletcher pointing and scolding Ham. Then Ham's wife yelled at the elder Fletcher. The Reverend was no longer in the box. Well, the Reverend got out of here when the getting was good, said Jones. I'll tell you one thing, Jonesy. I wouldn't want to be under the same roof as the old man tonight. Punky can kiss his career goodbye. Jones walked with Coco away from Hamilton and down the ramp. What are you going to do about Shorty? 
Coco laughed as they descended to the lower level. <laughs> we'll find out. Who owns Jingle Bells? asked Jones. Coco's face tightened. Oh, some Nimrod from Newtown. Not a player. The jockey is some kid from Vermont. It ain't so much that Jingle Bells won, Jonesy, but how the rest of those horses didn't win. Think you're right. Ahead, Lark stood at the winnings counter as Bucky fell to a side bench. Three state troopers, including Pinky Harris, escorted Lark and Flo through a side door. Coco walked up to Bucky, shaking his head as he folded his arms across his chest. Hey, Rodent, what happened to Lawson? We won! We won! Yeah, I know you won. Bucky raised his arms into the air. 350 bucks! Whoopee! Whoopee! Now, you goof, what about Lawson? Why did they haul him away? Yeah, what did he do, Bucky? They don't have enough money to cover his bet, said Bucky. I'm going to buy myself a deluxe ice cream pie at Big Mama's Donuts. Hey, Humpty Dumpty, how much did Lawson put down? Oh, he put down his whole lottery ticket. And how much was that, asked Jones. I think it was close to 1500 bucks. Are you kidding me? Asked Coco, his dark eyes bulging. Then he turned to Jones as he thought. Jonesy, you're talking over 50 grand. The Handyman's Secret by R.P. Fitton Chapter 1 In two hours, Jones's baseball team would play Danbury College for first place. Now he got a call from Hamilton Fletcher wanting him to report to Fletcher Hill for a meeting in his study. Jones did not even bother trying to explain the game situation to the Fletcher patriarch. He walked with Juanita, the Fletcher maid, down the long tile hall to Hamilton Fletcher's study. Hamilton, drink by his keyboard, turned as Jones and Juanita into the study. Mr. Jones is here, said Juanita. Thank you, Juanita. Drink, Matthias? No, water's fine. I have a game at three. I get you some ice water, sir. Excuse me one moment, said Hamilton as he checked something on the computer monitor and then clicked the mouse. He quickly turned and took a sip of his drink before he stood. Matthias, I thought my horse should have won that race on Sunday. Pride has an impeccable lineage. What about your jockey? I fired Nuncio. He never pushed the horse in the stretch. I want that horse to show around the country. You're a damn good coach. Well, thank you, sir. I want a list by this weekend of potential replacements for Nuncio. Well, I, I already have detectives snooping around Frothingham and a doctor from Kentucky to thoroughly examine pride. Jones thought about Coco. Well, I can check on potential jockeys. Juanita brought him a tall glass of water with ice. Jones lifted it from the tray. Thank you, Juanita. I want victory when we run pride in the Tri-County Fair in July. I understand. What does Ham say? No, he's already back on the road. Webster Howard walked up to the atrium doors and knocked on the glass. Hamilton Fletcher took two steps to the door and opened it. How are you doing there, Webster? Webster released the grip on the bridge of his nose. He shook his head as if he were getting rid of thoughts. Sorry, I've got a lot on my mind. The outside spigots have been replaced, and uh, I suggest replacing the pump pool. Good work, said Hamilton, reaching in his pocket. He handed Webster a crisp $100 bill. Webster tightened his brow. Do you need more money? Is that it? No, sir, I'm okay. And Mr. Fletcher, $100 is much too much. Never turn down cash, son, said Hamilton, pointing. Remember that. I will, thank you. He tucked the hundred in his shirt pocket. Coach, what time is that Danbury game? 
Three o'clock, Webster. Well, I'll see you over there. Good luck. Thanks. Oh, and Webster, I need you to look at the plumbing in my house. It's an old house. I will do, Coach. Take care there, Webster, said Hamilton, shaking Webster's hand. I'll call you about those garage repairs. And feel free to order that pump. Excuse me one second, Hamilton. Jones walked with Webster down the steps onto the grass. Hey, Webster, were you sick on Sunday? Well, I'm still not good. Maybe you should go see Dr. Bradgate. Webster shrugged his shoulders. Did whatever made you sick make Vinny sick? Oh, I, I don't think so. Vinny has these days where he doesn't want to do nothing. Let me know if you hear anything. Jones paused as he thought. What made you sick? Oh, I got to the track was fine. I had coffee in my thermos. Got a sharp pain in my gut. I was talking to Bucky. Yeah, that would do it for me. Why was Bricker at the track? Because he's Mr. Fletcher's pastor. When Hamilton speaks, yeah, people jump, said Jones. I have to head over to the parish office. Mrs. Norris said she saw snakes around the church. Webster nodded and shook Jones's hand. See you at your game, coach. Good luck. Thanks. I hope you feel better. Oh, me too. Jones headed back to the atrium doors. He questioned why Hamilton offered more money to Webster. Jones moved inside the study. What the hell is bothering him? asked Hamilton from the computer. A definite pressure from somewhere. Oh, I see, said Hamilton, looking out the atrium doors. You know, Webster could make a fortune if he got himself organized, said Jones. My feelings exactly. He knows horses. He knows fishing. The man can fix anything. Well, let's hope he didn't fix the race, said Jones, wondering how Hamilton would react. Oh, that's very witty, very witty, said Hamilton as he finished the drink. The telephone on Hamilton Fletcher's desk rang. He answered it on speaker. This is Hamilton Fletcher. Hey, this is Bucky Driscoll. Oh. Hamilton paused and shook his head. Hello? Oh, no. I didn't dial that escort service again, did I? Look, Driscoll, state your business. Oh, phew. I just won some money at the track, and I was driving by Fletcher Hill on a Sunday night. I'm well aware that you and Coach Larson bet on that one-hit wonder, Jingle Bell. What the hell do you want, Driscoll? Well, I saw a UFO over your house. I wanted to check with you before calling the Air Force. All those red and green blinking lights. Listen, you babbling fool. You can take your flying saucers and sh... Oh, yeah? I'm trying to warn you so they don't get you. Oh, good. I'll get my ray gun out of my desk. Then he slammed down the phone. If that joker had the brain of a rodent, he'd be dangerous. Hamilton? You don't know how close you are to the truth. With Hamilton up by one run in the top of the 11th inning and the bases loaded, Jones debated whether to send his ace pitcher Joe Sabota into pitch on one day's rest. His assistant coach, emotion churning in his voice, spoke up near the bleachers. If this were the beginning of the season, I'd say don't pitch Sabota, but we need to win this one to get into first. Well, that's what I think, Woozy. Jones turned to the wide-shouldered Sabota sitting on the bench. He pointed to the mound and nodded. Then he asked for time. Sabota for Koppel, he said to veteran umpire Bill McLaughlin. Sabota was already warming up when he reached the mound. You held him for three innings, Jeff. Good job. Koppel nodded and trotted back to the bench with a round of applause as Sabota made it to the mound. How's the arm, Joe? Ah, oh, it's great. Al Zielinski, the catcher, joined them on the mound. Yeah, right. The next two guys can't hit the breaking stuff, especially that big guy, Jenkins. The third guy, Albertson, he's a good hitter. 
Mix it up with them. Make them ground out. Play at the plate. Bill McLaughlin raised his brows as he approached the mound. What is this, the meeting of the ladies' auxiliary? Be good to me, Bill, or I won't buy you dinner at the Colonial House. Take your time, take your time, said McLaughlin, laughing as he headed back to the plate. Focus, Joe, and just put him away. You got it, coach. As Jones walked away from the mound, McLaughlin dusted off the plate. Along the right field line, Webster Howard argued with Coco and then abruptly left Larson Field. Jones approached the bleaches as Sabota continued to warm up. How's his arm, coach? asked the red-haired Franny McShane, a waitress at the Colonial House. It's marginal, Franny. Better than your other arms, she said, pointing both fingers at him. Perhaps I should replace Woozy and bring you in, Miss McShane. I accept. Jones smiled as he returned to Woozy. Sabota nodded to Jones and the big guy stepped into the batter's box. Jones crossed his fingers. Sabota got the sign from Zielinski, checked the first base runner leading way off the bag. Even the runner at third was down the line shouting. Sabota wound from the stretch, gripped the outer seam, and his thumb tucked under the ball. He cocked his wrist near the thumb and spun off the thumb side of his index finger. Jenkins swung for the fence and hit the top of the ball. Jones' second baseman, Ronnie Seals, handled the ball and then hurled it to Zielinski, who stepped on the plate and then threw the big guy out at first. He's coming home! shouted Jones. Freddie Potts threw a strike right back to Zielinski, who put the tag on the runner from second base. Everybody converged on Sabota, lifting him into the air. Jones disappeared within the mass of Hamilton players. Gloves were thrown in the air, and Jones fell to the ground laughing. Somebody pulled him up. One pitch, shouted Woozy as they headed back to the bench. One pitch! I would say that was a pretty good call, coach, said Franny. Jones laughed. I appreciate that, Coach McShane. Coco smoked a cigarette at the end of the bleaches. Jones headed out to second base for a team meeting, but he wondered why Coco looked so tense and why Webster Howard had left the game. Coco remained near the bleaches. You want those broken bats? asked Leo Crowley as he dragged the equipment bag behind him near first base. You're lucky I don't use aluminum, Leo. Go ahead, take them. Great, I can fix them and my kids will use them. How's Joanne? Got her hands full with the three kids. By the way, I wouldn't listen to Joe. Make sure his arm is iced. Oh, I hear you, Leo. Take care. As Leo headed to the locker room, Jones approached Coco. Coco, what are you still doing here? Nice win there. That kid can go to the pros. In which sport? Yeah, right. Why the argument with Webster? I'm telling you, somebody screwed up with Vinny. Spiked the water. I wanted answers. Told me he didn't do anything. Well, something was going on at the track early. Something that caused Webster to feel like he'd been shot in the gut. Well, that makes no sense, said Jones as they neared the street. He's better now. As a matter of fact, he's still taking his boat of his out for a few days. Yeah, he fishes for tuna. Well, that's what he says. Yeah, right. Look, I'm meeting with him when he comes back, if he does. What do you mean by that? Don't you listen to the weather, Jonesy? There's a nor'easter coming up from the Carolinas. Well, I'm sure Webster knows how to pilot his boat. Hey, I got a call from J.B. She doesn't like your type, Coco. What do you mean by that? Well, you've got a few years on her. Nothing wrong with that, Jonesy. But I hear what you're saying. She's innocent, maybe even naive. Let me tell you something, Jonesy. Something about that chick. I, I fell for her the minute she walked up to Vinny. The Handyman's Secret by R.P. Fitton 
Chapter 2 Jones looked forward to fishing in Hamilton Bay with the Enterprise's publisher, Tom McGill. Jones, McGill, and Captain Kendall watched Lark's new outboard special as it skimmed Hamilton Bay's blue velvet waters. He said he wanted to take it for a test run, said the bearded Captain Kendall. <laughs> I don't think Lark's ever piloted a boat, Captain, said Jones. Well, he paid me cash out of the track winnings. He said he had used boats before. Yeah, well, Lark says a lot of things. What damage could he do? asked the captain. There's no one out there. Jones laughed and held McGill's shoulders. I don't think you want him to answer that, Captain, added McGill. Then Jones turned back to the bay. He followed Lark's boat. Why would Lark want an outboard special? The captain shook his head. Not Lark. Flo pressured him. Ah, still, Lark is pretty cheap, Captain chuckled. She used that magic phrase for Lark. Well, what was that? asked McGill. Lark, it's really not your money, it's all gravy. Oh, now it makes sense, said Jones. He caught sight of Lark's boat moving in circles over the breakers. Hey, that's real dangerous, Captain. Captain's blue eyes opened wide. He checked his watch. I told him no more than half an hour. That's way too fast. He's going to flip that boat. Lark's stomach nodded as the sea air pushed his hair back. Oh, no! What's the matter, Lark? asked Flo. It would appear that we're heading for some boat out there in the distance. Oh, Lark, that's too far away. I think I'm getting the heebie-jeebies. Oh, no, not the heebie-jeebies, said Flo. Lark's new boat was on a collision course with a drifting boat. Back at Hanson's marina, he should have accepted Captain Kendall's offer of piloting instruction. As the boat skipped over rougher water, Lark again gripped the jammed ship's wheel. On the lounger at mid-deck, Flo, her red kerchief flapping in the breeze, glanced up from her romance novel. He raised the binoculars and prayed she did not sense the impending doom. The old white and green boat, the only craft presently in Hamilton Bay, came into focus. There's no one in that boat, Lark, screamed Flo from the chair. She quickly steadied herself along the deck railing as Lark adjusted his captain's hat. Not to worry, Snookums. He yanked the wheel one more time. Then he shouted into the wind. Just a little navigational glitch. Flo covered her mouth. The wheel is stuck. Lark flipped open the plywood supply chest and retrieved the bulky specification book. He thumbed through a few pages, frantically trying to solve the problem. Wheel, wheel, it must be under W, or it could be under S, for ship's wheel, or maybe steering. Lark, do something! Lark dipped his glasses. He should have gotten new bifocals and not waited for the sale of glasses at Gizmo City. Let's see, automatic navigational compression, ANC, dislodge, ANC activation throttle and replace command with overdrive secondary protector. Hmm... Lark set the manual atop the storage bin near the railing and peered over the confusing controls. He pointed the binoculars through the salt-sprayed glass shield. Nobody was on deck of the green-trimmed boat. What do you see, Lark? Well, the odds are we're going to miss it. Flo stood on her tiptoes as Lark searched through the ANC throttle unit till he located an orange rectangular plastic piece stamped ANC. He pushed the button without a second thought. The ship's wheel now moved freely after a sudden snap. You did it, Lark! You did it! Well, I thought we were dead ducks, Snookums! Lark gripped the varnished wheel and prepared a course change. Now the wheel, although unlocked, spun freely. Oh, whoops! Lark, 
The boat up ahead. Oh, where's the radio? As the boat bounced along, Lark stuck his head into the storage compartment, knocked his skull on the edge, and his captain's hat fell off. Unable to find the radio, he again reached for the manual on the railing. The wind lifted the book, pages flipping over, over the edge. His voice shook as he scooped up his hat. The manual! It's gone! He planted himself in front of the wheel again, adjusted his captain's hat, and squeezed the smooth wood. But the wheel rotated like a spinning top. With his clenched fist, he banged the A and C button, but nothing happened. We're stuck! We're stuck, I tell you! Flo looked through the forward glass shield. Lark, there is another boat out there! The older boat that he had just seen through binoculars was now only a few hundred yards away. He raised his thumb to align his position with the stray boat. We're going to crash! I knew I should have put that track money in the bank! Well, we lucked out, Tom, said Jones. That storm went way out to sea. Yeah, it was a bad storm. You just never know. Jones nodded and inhaled the warm May air as McGill scanned the bay waters with the field glasses. Although the bay was only a few miles from the college, Jones already fell farther away. To his right, Captain Kendall steered Jones's rental boat past the vessels moored along the channel. Back at the bridge, along the highway, a woman next to a white off-road vehicle stared at the bay. Yikes, cried McGill. What the hell is he doing? Jones looked back at the captain. The captain's bringing the boat back to the dock. No, Lark! Matthias, he's headed for that other boat out there! McGill handed the field glasses to Jones. Lark's cruiser moved at an incredible clip, stirring up the foamy waves as it headed toward another boat. He's going to hit that boat. It's the only boat in the bay. Jones slipped the field glasses to McGill and then ran down the pressure-treated dark planks. The bearded Kendall guided his boat in. He threw out a long blue nylon rope and brought the boat closer to the dock. Captain, we've got a problem out there on the bay. The captain stepped up to the dock and looped the heavy rope around the pole. You spot some passing whales, Matthias? It's Lark. The captain squinted and raised his bushy brow. What about him? Jones extended his arms. We just saw his boat heading toward another boat out on the bay. They scurried up the dock toward McGill in his beige Bermuda shorts. He lowered the binoculars and handed them to the captain. Captain, he's going to smash that boat. Captain looked for only a second. Oh, the maintenance free. That's Webster Howard's boat. Webster Howard? McGill leaned forward. Thought he was deep sea fishing after tuna. He motioned them down the dock toward the harbor master's orange and white fiberglass patrol boat. They climbed inside and he cranked the engine. Almost immediately, they sailed away from the dock. The captain held the radio microphone. Lock or Webster, this is Captain Kendall. You're going to collide. Captain maneuvered the boat along the jetties toward the open water. Come in, Webster. Webster, can you hear me? Webster, can you hear me? Jones leaned forward as the boat kicked into a higher speed. Locke's course toward the second boat looked like a demolition scene from a Hollywood movie. He pilots that boat like he drives his car. Well, you got that right, said McGill, his eyes pressed to the binoculars. Locke, this is Captain Kendall. Come in. This is Captain Kendall. The wind pushed Jones's brown hair back as they followed the green buoys into the bay. The captain scanned through his own binoculars. Captain, why is he headed for Webster's boat? Because he doesn't know what the hell he's doing.
My fault. I never should have let him out there. I see him, shouted McGill, looking through the binoculars. He's trying to move his ship's wheel. Jones gazed ahead as the harbor master's boat raced into the open bay, but Locke did not change course and was about to ram Webster's boat, the only boat within miles. Why isn't Webster answering? Oh, it's broken, it's broken! Locke slipped on the deck near the ship's wheel. The green and white boat now loomed directly ahead, bobbing gently with every wave. Flo grabbed his shoulders. You need to shut off the engine, Lark! Right, right, shut it off, shut it off! Now he searched for the key. He remembered starting the engine, but had forgotten the ignition location. The older boat was perilously close as he ran his shaky hand under the panels. He felt the metal key and quickly turned it, grinding the starter. Frantic, he twisted it back and forth until the engine shut off, but the boat still moved at high speed. Through the glass, he saw the faded green letters across the old boat's peeling white bow. Maintenance free. Flo screeched in his ear, My God, Locke, we're going to hit that boat! She grabbed him and they dropped to the deck, nuzzled together against the front wall. After a scary silence and long anticipation, a loud crunch exploded into the sound of cracking wood. Locke's brand new boat lurched upward. For a moment, he thought they were airborne. Something broke apart above, raining debris all over the deck. He shielded himself over flow as his boat skidded and scraped bottom on the maintenance free. They were now tilted upward and bobbed at an odd angle. Are you all right, Snookums? He squinted in the sunlit blue sky. The maintenance free strong wooden mast had snapped into a twisted wooden splinter. You saved me, Lark. You saved me. You're my hero. Lark steadied himself as he stood, not sure just what he had done. He tensed his jaw. His glasses were still in place as he edged his way along through the debris to the railing. His boat had careened atop the other vessel. Stairs led below the maintenance-free, dull, varnished deck. Lark had seen this boat in the marina. Flo crossed the deck and held him as both boats continued to sway in the water. I do believe this is Webster Goward's boat, Flo. Howard. Oh, yes, Howard. He's a handyman. I wonder if anyone else is aboard. He stroked his chin. Hmm, only one way to find out. You're not going down there, are you, Lark? He leaned over the railing and cupped his hands. Hello down there. You think he's on the boat, Lark? No, sir. He squinted. We're dealing with a runaway boat. Oh, golly, Lark, you make it sound like a western when the horse breaks away from the corral. I assure you, Snookums, no one is aboard this boat. Unless we knocked him out or something, I hope you're not in trouble, Lark. Lark nodded. Oh, you may have a point there, Flo. He walked to the box under the panels and pulled out the emergency rope ladder. Lark, you're in no shape to be climbing down ladders. Lark raised his index finger. A man's gotta do what a man's gotta do. Lark straddled the railing and lowered his bulbous body onto the unsteady rope ladder. He longed to be 25 years younger and 40 pounds slimmer. Rung by shaky rung, he descended the unsteady ladder and finally stepped onto the older boat's weathered deck. Are you all right, Lark? I'm A-OK. A-OK. I'm going in. Please be careful. As he crossed the upper deck and uneasily descended the warped stairs below deck, Lark heard another boat engine. He nudged open the dull green door. 
a filthy fish odor filtered outward. Light from the bay shined through the dirty window and onto Webster Howard's body face down on the moistened carpet. Curly dark hair stuck out of his orange and green baseball cap and his glassy brown eyes were frozen. Locke recoiled when he saw blood on Webster's olive shirt and jeans. Webster! He resisted getting next to the body, but finally inched his way across the musty jute rug. Webster! Webster, are you alive? He studied Webster's dark beard stubble and strong set jaw. His mammoth fists were clenched, but his chest was not moving, even with no blood or wounds visible. You're dead, aren't you? Say something! Say something! Oh, dear God, I've killed you! That's definitely Webster Howard's boat, said Jones. He held the railing as the captain pulled alongside the maintenance free. He was out after tuna. McGill nodded. Good old Webster. He makes a living on things falling apart, but he can fix anything. Reshingled the back of my house last April. Nice guy. Funny. Good sense of humor. They say he could bring in a big tuna all by himself. Well, he must have come back early. Maybe he's still sick. I hope Locke didn't hurt him. How do you crash into the only boat on the bay? Well, we'll put that in the Locke Larson archives. Locke's propped up boat angled upward as both vessels moved with the waves. Flo, her red kerchief tied around her hair, ran to the side rail. Locke's on Webster's boat! He killed Webster! He's below the cabin! He killed Webster! He what? asked Jones. He climbed over the railing as the boat dipped into the water. He leaped onto Webster Howard's fishing boat. Lark! It's Matthias! He ran across the old deck boards. Here, Sam! shouted McGill from the captain's boat. I'm going below! Jones grabbed the edge banister and moved down the stairs, but he met Lark at the cabin door. I killed Webster Howard! I need a lawyer! I need the Reverend! Let me hire you, Matthias! Don't be so sure you killed him, Lark! Jones first looked at the small cabin's table bolted to the floor and studied the tiny stainless steel sink under a row of white Formica cabinets. Webster Howard's body was about ten feet away from the lower cabinet's sharp edges. Next to the sink, a plastic cup had been placed on a black napkin smeared with tomato sauce and marked R.L. in purple letters. A coiled microphone cord dangled from a transmitter near the window. What are you thinking, Matthias? asked McGill, standing with his hands on his hips. I'm not sure, Tom. Webster Howard's strong and callous hands, still tightened, lay solid on the jute rug. Lark, did you see him on deck before the accident? asked McGill. Lark, his eyes moist, raised his head slowly. Oh, no, I thought it was an empty boat. Dear God, what have I done? I don't think you did anything besides crash into his boat, Lark. Jones knelt next to Webster without touching him. Behind the edges of an orange and green baseball cap, through the dark strands of hair, the dried blood of an expanded, gaping head wound indicated a more extensive injury. Dried blood was darkened like cake frosting on his shirt and jeans. Ripped portions of the rug were exposed at the floorboards. An open wound, but no blood on the floor. Both boats had been towed to the marina and secured a couple of hundred feet away. Jones watched the two orderlies carry Webster's body covered in sheets on a gurney up the dock stairs. Another man opened the rear of the coroner's station wagon. Well, where's Pinky? asked Strickland loudly into the phone. Was he or was he not ordered over here? Then get him on his cell. 
Pinky was bringing additional people for Clayton, said the captain. Clayton's overloaded, George. That some kid named Everett Stubble was doing the Howard autopsy. Wendell came running out of the captain's office. George, it's Lark. He's hysterical. Wendell, call the Reverend, our Father Gallagher. He's shaking with the heebie-jeebies. Strickland rolled his dark eyes. Then get him a sedative. Hello, Captain Moxie, yes. Where's Pinky? asked Strickland loudly into the phone. Was he or was he not ordered over here? Get him on his cell. I talked to Pinky an hour ago. What do you mean he's busy? Right. Bye. Wendell headed back inside the captain's office. He and Jones started down toward the docks. Look, Matthias, it's obvious. Webster was killed somewhere else other than the boat. R slash L. Some kind of restaurant napkin. Never heard of it. Jones studied a billowing cloud just above the horizon. Well, let's take Lark out of the picture. Well, that would be a smart plan, said Strickland, patting his forehead with his handkerchief. If Lark didn't collide with Webster's boat, the maintenance free would drift along the currents near the Pequonica River. Strickland pointed north. Kids' rafts, old boats, they always land up near the northern end of the Pequonicut. Jones produced a sly grin. The heart of this case, George, is that cloud out there. Why? We were supposed to get that nor'easter it went out to sea. Then Webster would have been lost at sea if he was already dead, and the storm would have sunk the ship. Jones turned and leaned toward the dock rails. And I'll tell you what McGill said. We can assume that R slash L isn't around here. North or south? asked Strickland as they retreated back toward the captain's office. Jones shook his shoulders. Inside the window, Lark stared out the side window with his mouth open as Flo massaged his shoulders. I'm not going in there and listening to Lark's nonsense. So much for our going fishing. What are you going to do, Matthias? I'm going back to my office before this afternoon's practice. Matthias, what are the odds of Lark ramming Webster's boat? About the same as Jingle Bells winning the ocean stakes. The Handyman's Secret by R.P. Fitton Chapter 3 No one knew why Webster Howard was murdered, placed on his boat, and set adrift at sea. Only a wayward storm, nudging east off the North Carolina coast, allowed the boat to follow the currents into Hamilton Bay. And to compound matters, Jones's team was in second place. After the loss to Groton, Jones walked from his office and back to the playing field, thoughts of Webster's death mixed with his team's sloppy performance. He studied the upper bleaches where Webster Howard sat in the corner during home games. Had someone taken revenge on Webster because of Vinny's loss in the ocean stakes? And who were Webster's friends and enemies? His cell phone rang. Loss doesn't describe how they played, George. Like everyone had no brain function. Well, that's what happens when you let Bucky and Artie come to your practices. Jones evidenced a smile. What have you got, George? Clayton's guy, Stubble, has completed the autopsy. Like we thought, Webster was murdered somewhere else other than the boat. Well, that's a news flash. And Lark is still convinced he's going to jail. Jones tilted his head back and then sat on one of the lower bleaches. Tell him whatever it Stubble said. I did. He won't listen. Well, forget Lark. Webster was supposed to be way out at sea fishing for tuna. Obviously, somebody got to him, and I don't think they dropped in by parachute. I agree. He headed to destination unknown. R slash L. 
Jones looked over his shoulder. Leo Crowley's red truck slowed by the outside fence. Matthias, Captain Moxie over at the state police ran a computer scan of all the restaurants down to Virginia. There's nothing, and nothing with R slash L of any company. Why would there be a napkin like that on a fishing boat owned by a guy who's a handyman in Hamilton, New Hampshire? Leo's truck door closed and he started toward the gate at Larson Stadium. Well, that napkin could have come from anywhere. George, all I'm saying is this is very atypical. I doubt you found anything else on that boat or at his house that's out of sync with his life. That is correct, and his wife Mabel never heard of our slash L or saw that napkin. Sounds like a company, George. I'll call Moxie and have him check. Leo saluted from the corner of the bleachers. Jones smiled and returned the wave. And O'Connell is incognito. Got some time to this Sunday's game. Let me think about all this. What about Coco's buddy who owns the horse? Coco's lying low, and that's never a good sign. Bye, George. Jones slipped the phone into his nylon jacket. How goes it, Leo? Well, probably a lot better than you. Jones grinned. Oh, we'll bounce back. There's nothing worse than good players playing badly. Who said that, Yogi? One of my coaches when I was in Little League. I could have used Dave Carney today. He never put up with anybody that was dogging it. Well, that can be good or bad, said Leo, sitting next to him. You didn't pitch Sabota today. Jones gazed down the first baseline. Nope. Had him at first. I don't want that kid to ruin his arm. He could go a long way. To the pros? Maybe. I've been reading McGill's articles in the Enterprise. The Webster Howard thing sounds screwy. Jones nodded as the Dewar's lumber truck rounded the Hamilton Street corner. Jones pulled Leo around the side of the bleachers. The last thing I want right now is Arnie Dewar's cackling about that game or anything else for that matter. Good move, coach, said Leo as both men crouched and watched Arnie pass on to Main Street. Ah, methinks we've escaped, said Jones. He moved back to the lower bleachers. Leo, I talked to Clayton Morris when we got both boats to the marina. Everett Stubble, that hotshot kid out of college, said in his report that somebody hit Webster hard from behind and dragged the body onto the boat, and the rug was torn. Why? I don't know. And then they let the boat drift. Well, there was a storm coming, but it went out to sea. Exactly. What is that R slash L you were talking about? Jones shook his head. Captain Moxie of the state police is having his people run checks on restaurants and companies down the East Coast, but they haven't found anything. Where's Pinky Harris? I thought he would handle homicide in this area. That is a good question, Leo. He pulls over my truck every Saturday when I go to the landfill. Why does he do that? Because he likes to have breakfast at Sal's on the beach and he waits at the dump. Tells me I have a tail light out. Same story every week. No ticket, just harassment. Muddy runs the landfill, and Muddy doesn't like him. Now, he's an idiot. Who, Muddy? Jones evidenced a grin. Take your choice. Leo laughed and nearly lost his balance on the bleachers. What about Lark? Well, him too. No, he's a wreck. I heard he hired an investigator. Oh, come on. A little guy from the UK, said Leo. Ah, bringing in Sherlock Holmes, is he? Leo jabbed his finger into Jones's shoulder. This guy is obnoxious, and I think he's doing it for Lark for gratis. That sounds like someone Lark would hire. Jones stood and stretched. I need more information about what Webster was up to, or even about his background. Remember, I didn't grow up here. Well, Webster went to the Hamilton school system. He was a few years ahead of me. I think he graduated with Pudgy Wilson. 
He had a brother in Vermont who goes to Furish Parish. Ah, the Most Reverend Bricker. Bricker hasn't been here a real long time. If you go back to the 1700s, they had 50 or 60 pastors there. Father Gallagher doesn't like Bricker. Oh, I'm well aware how much Jim is rattled by Bricker. You mean the new chapel. Bricker has tried to block Gallagher's efforts to locate a satellite St. Bart's Chapel off Washington Street. Well, Arnie says First Parish somehow has the deed to that land. Jones squinted. That may or may not be true. Well, Arnie has a big mouth. No comment. Gallagher went to the diocese when he learned Washington Street was First Parish land. Well, McGill quoted Bricker in the Enterprise. There will be no sale of the Washington Street land, Father Gallagher. Jones raised his index finger. Yeah, that's where it all started. People don't realize Jim's temper. Gallagher thinks it's prejudice. George told me Bricker wants the Washington Street land for the Christian youth group. They have a camp north of town on the Pequonicut River, but no area for basketball and youth activities. Nah, it's just Bricker being stubborn and waiting for the upper hand. Which is crazy because First Parish needs a lot of repair. Webster was just over there fixing the clapboards. Sale of the land would pay for all the repairs. Ah, they're both stubborn. One of Gallagher's shortcomings. I have to get over to the communications department, said Jones. The game book is in my office, Leo. You can phone in the play-by-play to McGill. Will do, coach. Mark Morrison tells me we're 90% complete for that annual faculty meeting. There's a lot of game footage from last fall in it. Well, Nigel Kent will like that. Yeah, rumor has it Hamilton's going to make him president of the college. Lark's long brown car slid to a stop within inches of Leo's truck. Well, you've escaped Arnie, coach, but now you have to deal with Lark. Must be my unlucky day, Leo. Lark, in a bright orange blazer, marched through the street entrance. Trailing him, but moving at an equally rapid clip, was a tiny man with pinpoint brown eyes and a small head with a Caesar haircut. He wore outdated checkered pants, pistachio-colored shirt, and a blue bow tie. I assume this man is Locke's investigator. Yeah, right-o, said Leo, using one of Locke's favorite expressions. Jones moved forward and met the two men behind the backstop. Locke, the game's over. Locke tightened his facial muscles and ground his teeth. I feel responsible, Matthias. The little guy had an odd smile, as if he were constantly pleased with himself. Responsible for what, Lark? The Webster Howard fiasco. I told you he was dead before you hit the boat. Don't jump to conclusions, Jones, said the other man in a loud British voice. Jones looked into his tiny dark eyes. What we see is not always what is there. Who the hell are you? Oh, I see I've gotten your attention. Spiffy, spiffy, real spiffy. Jones' annoyance surged. You haven't told me who you are. Lark stepped between the two men. He landed last night. He's Clyde Hooper. Detective Hooper. Jones rolled his eyes as Hooper rigidly extended his hand but dropped his clipboard to the ground. Papers went flying across the field. Don't fret, don't fret. A little wind won't deter Clyde Hooper. Hooper scampered across the grass and scooped up the papers. Lark, where did you get this clown? He comes highly recommended. Where, from the dog pound? He showed me his credentials. Yeah, I'm sure he's chasing them right now. Hooper plucked pieces of paper from the chain-link fence. Lark, I'm looking into Webster's death, and so are the state police and George Strickland locally. Well, I appreciate your efforts, old boy, said Lark, raising his hand and whispering. We need to go undercover here. 
Hooper, attempting to reach for a piece of paper, perched halfway along a maple branch. He slipped and hung upside down. You really hired this guy? Oh no, he works on the ball peen rating system. Locke's mouth turned down as he spoke. I think he's stuck in that tree. Hooper pleaded for help from the branch. Help me down here, I'm stuck. We'll fire this monkey. Get rid of him. What's the ball peen rating system? Used in intelligence services. It is? Jones furrowed his brow and looked up at Hooper's red face. Just let go, Hooper. Clyde Hooper will not be defeated. Pens in a small notebook fell to the grass. Jones scooped up the pens. Just let go, Hooper. Detective Hooper. Hooper spoke in a low voice as he looked down at Jones. Confidentially, I'm rather afraid of heights. You're only five feet from the ground, Hooper. Oh, boy. Jones placed his hands on Hooper's back. I've got you. Just let go. Are you sure I don't I don't want to re-injure my back? I've got you. I trust your judgment, Jones. I'm glad. Hooper unclasped his legs and swung into Jones's stomach. In the words of Confucius, all's well that ends well. That was Shakespeare, said Jones, rubbing the pain in his abdomen. Oh, did he say that too? Oh, no, I'm sure it was Vince Lombardi, said Lark. Jones stared at both men, wondering how he could break away. Then he stepped toward Leo. Well, we'll be seeing you. Wait, wait, said Hooper, grabbing his arm. You haven't let me explain the BRS. Oh, well, the old BRS used by investigators around the world. Yeah, that's nice. I have to go now. Come on, Leo. Ha, <laughs> working on the case yourself, eh, Jones? asked Hooper. Jones and Leo started across the field. Well, I'll see you later, Lark. Hooper. Detective Hooper! It'll be a case with no stitch undone. Right. Jones broke into a run, increasing his pace across the infield back to the gym. His phone rang. Jones. Coach, this is Bucky Driscoll. Jones half-closed his eyes, nixed the call, and rubbed his abdomen as he looked at Leo. That idiot Hooper kicked me in the gut. Leo smiled. You mean Detective Hooper. The Handyman's Secret by R.P. Fitton. Chapter 4 Franny, in her aqua uniform, handed Jones's takeout order at the Colonial House. Extra fries. Thanks, Franny. Your boys are tired, Matthias. I didn't even consider that. I was looking at the individual performances. Franny smiled and pointed both her index fingers at him. Well, we'll have a few days downtime. They all have talent, but they've been pushed. What are you saying, I'm pushy? Yes. Jones grinned. Okay, we'll get back to work. Yes, sir, she said, saluting. Jones munched on a french fry and watched her disappear inside the restaurant. Good advice. Jones maneuvered his jeep past the flashing yellow light at Shore Road and continued along the bay. He was not sure what happened to Webster Howard. But clouding his reasoning powers were thoughts of Hooper hanging upside down from the branch behind the backstop. Both Lark and Hooper could hamper this investigation. As he drove across the Hanson Marina drawbridge, dozens of boats were highlighted in the late afternoon sun within the deep blue bay. McGill's red compact was parked on the grass above the marina near the spot where the woman had overlooked the bay. Who was that woman? Jones said out loud. He skidded onto the shoulder behind the compact and got out of the jeep. McGill rode on his pad near the captain's office. After snooping around the beach grass for a few moments, he hiked down the clumpy slope to the dock. Webster Howard's weathered white boat was moored along the dock. 
How goes the battle, Tommy? A tall trooper, Bannister O'Connell and Strickland, just left. Bannister? O'Connell was named after a brutal British general from the Revolutionary War. Why? I don't know, Matthias. You know, I've seen obnoxious cops in my day. Jones smiled. O'Connell's right up there. O'Connell's a beaut. George couldn't get a word in edgewise with him. And O'Connell's taking charge of the evidence. Some deal with Herbert Lane. Well, that's a bad move. Supposedly, he shipped everything out to the state police lab. You mean the napkin and the cup? Yes, sir. What did George say? <laughs> he called O'Connell a Neanderthal and a few other expletives. Good. McGill motioned him along the dock to Webster's boat. Two sawhorses and yellow police tape blocked the boat plank. McGill pointed at the hull. Red paint. A long red scrape crossed the peel paint and scuff marks and angled downward into the dark water. That's new paint. Suppose they're testing that, too. I wonder what Webster hit or what hit him. Jones approached the yellow tape. Can we go inside? Well, O'Connell says no. We've already been in there, Tom. I know. Who would want to kill Webster, anyway? Everybody liked him. Everybody did like him. But he did have a bad fight, or I should say argument, with his wife before he went out on the boat. I heard O'Connell talking to Strickland about it. I'd like to know whether Webster filled that tank before he went out. Jones gazed up the slope near the bridge. And I want to know who that woman was. She was staring out toward Webster's boat. Well, you don't know that, Matthias. She was probably just enjoying a view of the bay. Yeah, well, let's go see the captain. The harbor master's house reeked of cherry tobacco. Jones looked down at the boats and across the darkening bay before he turned to the white-bearded captain. Captain, did you notice any red boats in the harbor when Webster went out? Captain puffed on a brown pipe and shook his head. I know. Thought about that, too, when I saw the scrape. Did Trooper O'Connell get some of that paint over to the lab? Not that I know of. How about the gas tank? Did Webster fill the gas tank before he went out? Yeah. About seven Monday night. So this was his usual time to go fishing? Asked McGill. No. Webster usually left on Wednesday morning, came back Thursday night. What was he doing out on Monday night? Asked McGill. He didn't say. Captain set down his pipe on the side table's glass ashtray. But he did seem in one hell of a hurry when he pumped that gas. Usually he comes in, talks to me, but Monday night was different. You mean with the argument with the wife? Yep. Before he pumped the gas, they were going at it like cats and dogs down at the dock. Just for a few minutes, and then she left. He pumped, I tallied his slip, and he got right on his boat, and that was that. I need to check that gas gauge and receipts, said Jones. Does Trooper O'Connell already have that information? Well, he never asked me. What do you need gas receipts for, Matthias? asked McGill. See how far he went. We may not know right away where he went, but we might be able to figure the mileage. I knew Webster's father, said the captain. Wonderful man, handyman, just like Webster. Family's been in Hamilton for a couple of hundred years. Wow, said Jones. Trouble, said McGill, looking out the window over the bay and shore road. What's the matter, Tom? Pinky Harris's SUV is parked on the highway. Oh, really? Jones peered over McGill's shoulder. The trooper, in full brown and green uniform, grabbed his hat from the top of the SUV. He started down the stairs to the harbor master's house. Great, just what we need, said Jones, walking toward Pinky. Nice to have you back in town there, Pinky. 
His white face compressed even deeper, and he growled at Jones. Out of my way, Jones. Pinky? Trooper Harris. And I've got a little cell over at the barracks waiting for people like you. People who think they know more than the police. This investigation is 99% complete. As far as I'm concerned, it's an open and shut case right now. Well, there was a woman on the bluff. Amateur. Well, don't be so hard on yourself, Pinky. Pinky's face reddened and his white forehead wrinkled like the pavement near the beach. He lifted his cuffs from his belt. Now what do you think, Jones? Think you're a bigger jackass than I thought. Pinky lunged toward Jones, who easily dodged him, and Pinky ran forward, trying to keep his balance. Having uh, trouble navigating there, Pinky? Pinky stabilized his boots on the wood. He swiveled his head around and looked for Jones. You're under arrest! The captain emerged from the side office. Well done, Pinky. You'd arrest a seagull if he cackled at you. I never arrested any seagull, grumbled Pinky. Jones approached onto the boardwalk. What about the napkin? You need to find that restaurant the napkin came from. I don't take orders from you, Jones. I'm just asking a valid question. Your paper has always been radical. Radical? Jerry St. Clair never published speculation. Jones rolled his eyes and walked to the railing. The red streak, still visible, appeared like a warning message below the bow. What about that long scrape against the bow, Pinky? Boats depreciate. McGill moved closer to Pinky. Has anybody checked out the manufacture and color of that paint? Or how about a boat matching that paint? Pinky's eyes brightened. Tension brewed in his clenched fist and set jaw. What is this, a flippin' news conference? You're a newspaper man. You check it out. I will, since you don't seem to be doing your work. The trooper's cell sounded and he reached into his belt. I have a call. Oh, congratulations, said Jones. Pinky pointed his finger. You're on thin ice, Jones. As Pinky stepped outside, Jones spoke in a low voice to McGill. Why did he want to take control of this? Because he's a jerk, said McGill. Well, we know that. We're going to have to find out this stuff ourselves. Pinky's brown and green uniform outlined the outside door frame in the knotty pine wall. Yes, Captain. I talked with Mabel, uh, Mrs. Howard. No, no. Shouldn't appear to know why this happened. Well, we need to talk to her, said McGill. She might have information about Webster's activities. Pinky walked away from the door, but Jones could still hear him. Yeah, I'm up here now. Right now, Mario. What? Oh, you got to be kidding. That's ludicrous. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, I will leave right now. Yes, sir. Goodbye, Mario. He tucked the phone back in the belt clip. Jones and McGill backtracked to Captain Kendall. Oh, you back so soon, Pinky? said Jones as Pinky looked around the room. I've been called away. Ah, what a shame. I want to make one thing abundantly clear. Yeah, what might that be? asked Jones with a smirk. Pinky squinted as he lumbered across the wood floorboards. I am in charge of this operation, mister. Don't forget that when you're back on the ball field. Is that clear? No. Pinky was in the process of turning, but his head snapped back. What did you say? The last I heard, Pinky, this is a free country, unless that's changed in the last few minutes. The trooper held up his thumb and index finger as if he were going to pinch salt. You're this far away from spending the night at the barracks. Are you going to arrest me, Pinky? Trooper Harris. Everyone's got a title. Watch it, Jones. He spun toward the captain. Thank you for your cooperation in this investigation. 
Captain lit his pipe and shook the match. Watch your step, Jones. He stomped toward the door without looking back. The bell shook and he scampered toward the hillside stairs. Well, he's not a bad guy, said McGill, still holding his yellow pad. Jones laughed as Pinky reached the dock and veered toward the highway in his cruiser. Even the captain chuckled from his chair. Not a bad guy. You've got to be kidding. That guy is a Koya Jets, Matthias, said McGill. Jones watched Pinky get in the SUV and quickly pull onto Shore Road. He wants us out of the investigation. That in itself is suspicious. First the woman on the bluff and now Pinky. I think that's just his personality. Jones spun around. So, Captain, we have Webster usually going out on Wednesdays and coming back to port on Thursday evening. That is correct, said the captain. This time he left a day and a half early. Yep. And he left in a hurry after filling the tank. I wonder where he was headed. The captain puffed on his pipe. Could be anywhere. Why is Reverend Bricker at the racetrack? And Locke Larson, the biggest cheapskate in town, has won the Ocean Stakes on a rogue tip from Coco. And Webster Howard doesn't know why he was so sick on the day of the race. Coco tells Jones he fell for Boudreaux the minute he saw her. Locke crashes his new boat into Webster Howard's fishing boat, returned from deep sea fishing for tuna. Webster is below deck and dead. Jones, on board, finds a restaurant napkin marked R.L. Later, it was learned that Webster was dragged on board. Jones and the cantankerous state trooper, Pinky Harris, clash, and Pinky threatens to arrest Jones and bring him over for interrogation at the state police barracks. And let us not forget, one of Jones's quote-unquote helpers in the case is Clyde Hooper who was originally hired by Locke Larson. Enough said. The stage is set for a wider investigation. Join me next time for episode two of The Handyman's Secret. This is Robert P. Fitton heading over to the barracks. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com, or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.